Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 134th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Andrew Altfest. Andrew is the president of Altfest Personal Wealth Management, an independent RA based in New York City that oversees nearly $1.3 billion for nearly 600 affluent clients. What's unique about Andrew, though, is that he's become the second-generation leader in a family advisory firm founded by his parents, who themselves were early NAPFA fee-only pioneers, and how he's now positioning the business to grow and build upon their legacy in the decades to come. In this episode, we talk in depth about the dynamics of a family business, why it's often easier to find alignment in a family business because the values of the owners and parents tend to get transmitted to the children as successors within the family from a young age. How Andrew ended up finding the path to the family business, despite having not planned to pursue it originally, and the ways his parents exposed him to all aspects of the business, from operations to clients, from early on to build his breadth of experience as a future leader. We also talk about how exactly Andrew is beginning to position the firm for the future, from rolling out a next-generation client service, charging a minimum planning fee to serve the children of their current clients, to increasingly leveraging technology tools to communicate with clients by a wider range of means, and how Altfest eventually decided to hire tech developers and begin to create their own technology tools to better track and find planning opportunities for clients, a solution that they eventually intend to make available for other advisory firms as well. And be certain to listen to the end, where Andrew talks about the changes he's implemented as a leader of the firm since going back to get his MBA and participating in the Schwab Executive Leadership Program, from rolling out an annual client engagement and satisfaction survey that's tied directly to the firm's advisor compensation, the employee satisfaction surveys they do internally to evaluate their team, and the practical challenges that Andrew faced and overcame in trying to drive change in a longstanding, already successful advisory firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Andrew Altfest. Welcome, Andrew Altfest, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Michael. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion today. We've had a couple of guests on recently that have, have talked about the dynamics of not just following the advisory firm path, but doing it in the context of of family firms in particular. And so you know, our last guest was someone who started a firm with a sibling. And I know you've had an interesting path in coming into a firm that that your parents founded originally and an uh, incredibly well-known and respected firm in the industry, Office Personal Wealth. And so I just I was I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I think not only talking about just what it's like to go through a you know, 15 to 20 year journey of starting out in an entry level in a firm and, and climbing all the way up through the ladder to the point that you become the the president of the firm. But also what that's also like when the people you're trying to take over from happen to be your parents as well. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine a whole other level of complex dynamics between trying to move up the ladder and get promoted and doing it with parents who still remember what it was like when you were in diapers, which is sort mm-hmm. of odd awkward thing in a performance review. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. As I've grown older, I've come to to reflect more on my experiences working at Altwest Personal Wealth Management and working for my parents. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, I'm a student of family businesses and I, I enjoy learning about family businesses. And, you know, there, they say there are a couple of things that, that make family businesses like ours successful. One of them is that the values of the founders of the business tend to be the, the values of the company. And the values that my parents have, those are the values that I grew up with. And so I was being primed to, you know, to be successful in the business without even knowing it. It's an interesting point that just if when you're growing up in your parents' household, you know, any other business owner doesn't get to instill their values in their employees until the employees take the job and start it. You got values from day one because <laughs> hmm. because it's, it's your mom and dad, and you're growing up in that household with those values. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. And you know, it, it, from from the standpoint of of hiring people, you, you know, there, there's plenty of you know really intelligent people, but it, it always comes down to the cultural fit, and and so the cultural fit for me and and for Altfest, I mean, it's it's very aligned, and so the so. The things that I grew up with, there are also our values here. I grew up with my father telling me and my mother telling me, you know, think for yourself. You know, don't just be a consumer of information. You know, really have an opinion, analyze it. Don't think, don't take things for granted. That also leads to success on the investment side, and it leads to success working with clients. I was going to say the. Those are like have an opinion, don't take things for granted, analyze it. Like, you know, good, good general words of wisdom in life. Also, particularly effective when you're a portfolio manager. Like, mm-hmm. those are those are quite well aligned values about what you have to do to be successful with investments. Yeah, and and you know, I, I grew up, you know, with the I remember the long car rides with my parents in the back seat with them two two financial advisors growing their their practice hearing about the challenges and the issues that they were working through and and you know just listening and and observing and saying hey you know one day i hope to be able to you know, contribute and you know there there are other th- other values like we are value oriented investors my father when he would when we would go shopping, he would take us to sales and he would say, Hey, you see this Ralph Lauren shirt, you know, you can buy it at Ralph Lauren or you can go to size Sims, which existed at the, at the time when I was growing up or century 21. And you, you could buy this thing and in, in some bin, you know, it will be all, all wrinkled and at the bottom of a bin for 80% less than you can buy it at the store. And and so, you know, that that's another core value that that I that I learned. It was it, it's just it's amazing now to think about how all that affected me since I was since I was very little. <laughs> I mean, it sound now it sounds like he's just literally trying to train and inculcate you in value investing as a small child. What was that actually part of the like the theme and the thought process was, was this always a destined path that like you wanted to grow up and come into the business and your 
parents wanted you to grow up and come into the business? Or did you only find this later in life, further down the road of saying, hey, I think I'm going to go work in that firm after hearing mom and dad talk about it for 20 plus years? No, I, I came I came to it on my own. I, I had a couple of different periods. And the first period was, this is what I want to do. I remember I started an investment in my high school and I tried to read Graham and Dodd at like age 15 and I, and I couldn't, <laughs> but I remember thinking it was really cool. I remember opening the, the book and, and, you know, trying to go through the pages and it was a little bit over my head at, for a 15 year old, but, but, you know, I, 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 I loved just the, the industry. And, and after high school, I, I had an internship at a, at a large brokerage company and I would leave high school and I would take the train down and, in, in New York City to this broker's office and, and help her out at, right after school, you know, for no money. And, you know, I just, I loved, you know, working and I loved working on, on investments. Then when I got to, to college, things changed a bit and, you know, my interests went in a different direction. And I actually, I, I switched to the liberal arts school at, at Cornell University where I went to, to college and became an English major. I thought I wanted to be a writer. Your your poor value investing parents. They're like we sent him to we sent him to Cornell and he became a liberal arts English major. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I, I, I even switched from a, a land grant school and in, in, if you're a New Yorker and you go to Cornell, one of the land grant schools, it's uh, tuition is less. Oh man, you're just like, you're selling low buy and high here. This is getting rough. <laughs> so, but they were, they were, uh, they were great about it. They, they supported me. And by the end of school, I knew that that being a writer wasn't, wasn't, while well, I got good feedback from professors, it really wasn't what I loved doing. And so I took an internship at, at the firm between junior and senior year of college. And then after I graduated from college, I started at the firm and I didn't know if I would like it. I didn't know if I'd be watching the clock and, and it would just be a drag, but it wasn't, it was, it was the coolest thing. It was, it was just, you know, just so intellectually stimulating all the work and all the learning. And what was really great about it was at the time that I graduated school and for the the next three plus years, I lived at home. And so I, I had this, this great education because I would work and then I would come home and I would just talk about the markets with my, with my father. Mm. And we had to, to create a rule that starting at 9 PM at night, that was it. No, no work time. No, you can't talk about work <laughs> after nine o'clock. I would just, I would keep going. I mean, I just, I was like a sponge. I just, I just soaked it all up. So I, I had this great, this great education over the next few years, working under under my father on helping him with clients and helping and and also working as an investment analyst. And and I was going to ask, like, what was that role that you that you started out with? What did they have you doing initially? Initially, my my job was was a hybrid between client support and investment analysis. Okay. And so I, I got exposure to a couple of, of the key parts of, of, of the business. And it was, it's very, I mean, clients love 
you know, love the idea of the next generation. You know, I got a lot of good feedback working with clients and, you know, I also on the investment side, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I remember the, the second week I was working, I got a, a chance to sit through a meeting with Jean-Marie Evayard from First Eagle. And wow. it was like week two of some 22-year-old kid. And I'm sitting there hearing about, you know, this this really famed, accomplished portfolio manager, you know, go through his views and his philosophy and and you know, we, my, my father is being generous with, you know, knowing that, that this was in part an education. And, and so I, you know, I, I had this, this amazing, this amazing exposure, you know, which really we, we now try to give to, to all new employees who joined the firm. And it was, it was great. It was, it was learning how to practice early and, and getting exposure the, and I think how to, how to practice the right way. I think it's important you re, I guess both reminder and challenge, I think, for a lot of advisory firms that in the early years and the early days and stages of of hiring someone on board, that a lot of what you can do for training and teaching is literally just giving people exposure, letting them sit in on client meetings, letting them sit in on investment meetings, letting them sit in on wholesaler meetings or meetings with managers and and just as it sounds like your parents did for you, just giving people the opportunity to absorb all that stuff because there's so much to learn in the early years of the business. Oh, yeah, definitely. And just figuring out what you don't know. The internship that I had in, in college was writing up summaries of the investment philosophies and processes of the different investment managers that we invested with. And, and just that alone was, that was part of the internship. Just that alone was, was amazing. It was like, well, what is, what does this all mean? And that's, it's, it's, it's something that, that every, every opportunity with an intern now or with a, with an entry level employee, they, they all want to learn. And if we, you know, you provide these opportunities, you know, it's, they really appreciate it. it it's, it's, it's much better than, you know, just working on trading or other entry level type functions. I mean, it's, it's, it makes the difference. So fast forward us a little bit to today, just so we have a little bit more context for the firm overall that, that you're in now as it exists today. Sure. So we at Altfest, we are just a little shy of, of 40 people. We manage north of a billion dollars. We work on a fee-only basis, primarily with high net worth individuals. And we have a separate practice for young professionals in which we waive our, our investment minimums. And we have a huge investment in, in technology, and, and, and we're doing a lot of exciting new things that I'll give you an example just of, of those a little under 40 people, a number of them are working on the R&D side. So we, we have a big investment in, in the future. So, all right, so I, I've got to ask about that then. So what what does it mean to be on the R&D side in a wealth management firm? <laughs> so we we have investments in a number of, of new areas. We see that the, we think that the, the future 
we're very uh, proud of of our accomplishments and where we are today as as a firm. But we think that the next 35 years are going to be quite different than the last 35 years. And so we have to be practicing not like it's 1995, but like it's, you know, 2019. So we're investing in wealth management. Everything that we're, we're investing in is, is coupled with technology. And so whether it's wealth management for our clients, additional services for our clients, or it's reaching new clients and, and doing that in a very modern 21st century way, also in, in investing in new investment strategies, investing in, in technology. I mean, th- these, these are all things that, that these people are working in. So, so can you give me an, an example or two of, of what this looks like, like a new area that you're investing in and, and researching or delving into? Sure. So let's, let's talk about the way we, the way I, I envision the, the future. We think that it's going to be essential for, for all of us in the industry to have a very clear and differentiated value proposition as providers of a premium wealth management service. And the way I see it is you can get a, a robo at nothing, which will, you know, rebalance your, your portfolio, or you'll get a, a robo plus a, a CFP at 30 basis points or around there. Or you can work with a wealth management firm and get a pay more, but get a ton more value. And so we are doing so much more these days for, for our clients you know, providing so many more services that our clients are asking us about. And to do that and to gain scale, you need to have a, a, a just a huge investment in, in technology. And so I'll give you an example of, of a client that I'm, I'm working with today. He, we were talking about his finances and, you know, lo and behold, he, you know, we, we noticed that he had a, a mortgage that had a balloon payment in a couple of years, an interest only mortgage. And this wasn't one of our agenda items, but it was like, Hey, you got a problem. (laughs) You know, let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's figure out what to do with this. And we ended up helping him to refinance into long-term fixed rate financing. That was the best option for him. Those types of opportunities, those types of things that we do for our clients, those are things that you know, separate us from uh, very clearly separate us from robo competition and other low cost entrants and right that are that are only focusing on the portfolio itself and aren't going to aren't going to tell you about why you should you know, not put more into your portfolio and fix your mortgage instead. Yeah, and and to to be able to do to provide the those services, we y- you have to be investing in technology. That's the only, that's the only way. And you have to be both automating all of the, the things that are, are unimportant that we do. And then also we have invested significantly in building technology that will allow us to identify these types of opportunities for, for clients. And we think that we're on the verge of another 
renaissance in our profession. You know, let, let's say the last we talked to, you know, about about Altfest, and we've been very in, influential in in the fee only movement. My father, Lou Altfest, was one of the founding members of of NAFA, and and the movement to you know, retirement planning and providing retirement planning to clients. And now I think we're at the same we're at the same point in which there's going to be yet another move to provide in financial planning, and we'll be providing will be that financial advisors will be providing wealth management to their clients, and it's going to be a renaissance in in the industry going forward, kind of the same similar to the one that we that we've you know we've had and been riding the waves of for for many years. So when you talk about investing in technology to identify these kinds of opportunities, like you know, mortgage refinance scenarios that we're not we're not necessarily always actively looking at or talking about with clients on an ongoing basis, is this like does that mean you're trying to use more financial planning software that's going to track this? Is this a like you're building your own technology tools that's gather and scrape client information and do a monitoring process? How are you actually trying to execute and do this yeah so we we've developed our own technology that combines big data with artificial intelligence and it's like in the industry while there's more options today we're so far behind i mean the industry is like you know we're, we're still in the stone age i mean it's still like we're still partying like it's 1999 it's it's 2019, and we, you know we in other industries there there's there's driverless cars coming, and and you know the the technology the the AI that's come into our into our profession has been minimal and not well received, and and you know disappointed people. There's just this great opportunity today with in in a world of of big data to just do so much more for for clients. And, and so nothing was out there that, that we needed. We didn't need another CRM or portfolio accounting software or another Monte Carlo engine. So we, we, we went ahead and built it ourselves. And so it's, it's like an alternative for CRM or it's like a tracking thing on top. What are, what are you creating? So it, it uses, AI. So let's go to the example of go back to this this mortgage example. In in the case of the of the mortgage, I had to identify this manually. I had to come up with a, a solution. It was quite inefficient to you know have to do all of this this work. These types of opportunities should be you know these these types of recommendations should be at our fingertips. In in the software that we're that we've developed. These types of opportunities are are presented, and Michael, I love the industry. I both my parents are financial advisors. The software that I built is going to be available broadly. You know, I'm hoping to really make a difference, not a buck. This will be available to to all financial advisors. I mean, meaning you're eventually gonna make it as software separately available. Other other advisors can license, use it in their firms as well. Yes. So so I guess I've got two questions around this. One, just help me, I don't know, visualize how this fits around my existing 
technology stack? Like if I've already got a CRM system, I've already got financial planning software, are you replacing one of those? Am I going to like buy and log into your software in addition to one of those? Are they pulling data from that stuff? Like where, where does this fit in? Well, this, this is, this is something that's, that's different. We're not replacing the CRM. We are integrating, we are making it very easy, but it's something that is, that's in addition because there is, there is nothing that, that's solving that pain point. It's like it's it's pulling in financial planning data because to me, when you start talking about areas like mortgages, like we type that in our planning software at some point. We don't necessarily type in that it's interest only in the due date and when the balloon payment triggers, so that, so that something can remind us in a few years to have that conversation with clients. But like it's sort of some of the same data. So am am I thinking about that right? Like you're you're gonna just capture, I guess, a deeper level of financial planning data in in the separate tool that you built so that the software then can prompt me for things like, hey, that client coming up is probably going to need to do a mortgage refi soon because their balloon payment's going to be coming due. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and we have the data. You're right. I mean, we have the data, but we just we just have the data. <laughs> we don't what are we what are we doing with the data? You know, it's it's like the financial planning went from 1 to 1.01 because we took mint.com and kind of had it a proprietary one that we, you know we could we could show to clients and let them get a better understanding of their expenses but what what do we do we, you know what do we do with that data I mean, it's it's like a presentation tool so we have the data but we don't have the recommendation and so that's what I'm working on and if there are any people out there who are listening who would like to be uh, an early user of the software, they can contact me. I'm Andrew at altfest.com. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's quite, it's quite exciting. And yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put links out so people can follow up with you as well. So this is, this is episode 134. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 134 and you want to try out or be, become a future beta user of this software when they make it available to others, then uh, you can get in touch with Andrew. So, so Andrew, does that mean like the firm actually went and literally hired tech developers? Like as part of your 40 employee headcount that you've got some software developers as as RIA employees, or or does this happen separately or somewhere else? I didn't include all of our we have a whole development team that works full time on this and and I did not include them in the in the in the 40 headcount. So we have a whole development office and and people who are experts in artificial intelligence. And, you know, I, I think, I think as part of the, we've been working so hard for so many years on professionalization. I know that's, that's what I've spent part of my time helping the firm with. And as the industry, we've professionalized our, our companies and, you know, hired COOs and, and, you know, done all these, these different great things. I think as part of the continued professionalization, they're going to be more firms who are, working on their own, working on coming out with software, investing in, in their own investment strategies. And fortunately there, there are a lot of firms who have the, the budgets to, to do this. And, you know, we, who, who better to understand our needs than, than, than us. Well, it's, it's always amazed me that when you really look at the software and the advisor landscape, an astonishing amount of it is what I call the 
the homegrowns, and, and I mean that in kind of an affectionate sense, but so much advisor software today originated from basically advisor has problem, advisor can't find solution, advisor gets aggravated and makes own software solution, other advisors hear about it and want to use it, advisor now has software business on the side. Like that's the origin of Juncture CRM, of Redtail CRM, of Orion, of Tamarack, of TRX, of iRebal, like a huge list of our very popular advisor software today in most of the categories. A huge portion of the software was just couldn't find a solution, made it for ourselves, and then it was so needed that it turned into a software company. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know it. How do you understand? It's not even what people are are asking for because if you ask them, you know what what they need, you would probably find some slightly better version of what's already out there. Right. But it's kind of like, well, what are they not asking for? But but really do need. And the only way that you're gonna to know those types of things is by having experience in this this problem yourself. And, and and so I think it's you know advisors are we as advisors are very you know rather than trying to to for the next innovation to happen to consumers and on the on the retail side and then adopt it. That's kind of like what we historically see. You know, robos came out for. The retail side should advisors take the robos that that kind of stuff. It's 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 more what I think will happen going forward is is it will be like well this is actually what this is the innovation that we need for our our profession as advisors and and we're just going to go out and build it. I'm intrigued as well that I mean I feel like this is something that I've heard from a number of firms over the years that have said you know I'm 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 so aggravated. There's no software to do blank, like what whatever the blank thing is in our firms. I, I wish there was software to do this. There's not. It's really frustrating. Not very many, though, actually then go to the next step and and actually try to build it. And and so I'm just I'm curious, I guess, what those conversations were like at the at the firm when someone actually puts on the table like, hey, let's spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to buy a bunch of our own developers to make a thing from scratch and hope it works out. Like what, <laughs> how to just from a practical perspective, like how does that come about where someone says, I'm willing to make that level of investment to hire a development team to build our own custom proprietary technology? Yeah. I think, you know, it's like any other investment, right? It's, it's, how do you prove that, that actually this is something that's desired? How do you, What's the potential of this? It's really like any other any other investment that that you would make in the in the in the firm. So if you you know if you go and you you show that there are enough people that you know have this you know experience experiencing this type of problem or would want software like this, and if you if the potential is is big enough, then you know I think the the investment becomes the investment becomes easy. And so, so does that mean as you were coming into this, this wasn't just a, hey, I think we can get a little bit more productivity and efficiency in our firm if we make this thing. It sounds like you you were building it, assuming from the start that this is actually software you want to build and sell to other advisory firms. Like Aldfest Personal Wealth might be the, you know, the first the first beta user or like the test lab, but were you were you going into this from the start, anticipating that we're going to end out making this into a software company that also sells the software to others? This isn't solely our thing for our firm. 
Yeah, from the start, that was the case. I, I don't. I don't think that if you if you build your own technology, you mentioned some homegrown tools. I think when you have when you have something that's that you are building for yourself and for no one else, it's it becomes very difficult to to continue to maintain it. And and I know some people do, and 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 they're happy and they. They have their own recipe for for what they do and 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 like that. But I think to 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 build technology, uh, you have to build it. And and if you want to solve your own problem, it makes it makes Altfest the work we do for our clients so much easier and 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 adds to what we do. But it's it's you have to be able to sustain it by having other advisors use it as well for it to be a good ROI. Yeah. Well, which is an interesting framing. I feel like, well, A, I think that's was the story for a number of firms that ultimately decided to take their homegrown solution, spin it off and, and, and license it to others. And, and to me, even at a higher level, like Commonwealth announced last year that they were taking their whole advisor 360 platform that they built internally for themselves and they're spinning it off and making it available for not only the, I think it's roughly 2,000 reps at, at Commonwealth, but 9,000 more at Mass Mutual. Mm-hmm. And they basically came out and said at the time, like, you know, we built this great technology staff stack and it's incredibly high rarely rated and it's very well received by our advisors. But we just can't amortize the development costs effectively over just, like air quotes, just 2,000 advisors as successful as they are because Commonwealth has one of the highest – average production per rep numbers in the industry. And so they they outright said, like, we we saw that the software development and maintenance costs were just going to become prohibitive in several more years of compounding unless we amortize them over a wider base. And so they took their proprietary software and made it not proprietary, but also licensed to others. And so now they can spread the costs over way more advisors and are, are apparently now are really fired up to invest more into the business again. So it's it's... It's an interesting dynamic that even for firms that start out with their own technology, at some point it becomes tempting to sell to others just so you can amortize the development costs over more users, more base, more people who are paying. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that that's it's it's necessary to to operate that way, and you know the the more people who use it who use the software, the better the software will be as well. I mean, I think you get. You get great insights from 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 other users, and particularly when it's an an AI based software program. Well, very cool. So, technology side, help me understand a little bit more about just the firm overall. So, you said about forty employees, a billion dollars plus under management. How how many clients is that across the firm, or at least roughly? We we have over six hundred households. That we work with. Okay. So a kind of average client size is right in there at, at one and a half to two million dollars each. So a fair fairly affluent group overall. Yeah, we're we're a little bit so our, our AUM is around one point three billion dollars. And yeah, so we're we're a little over two million on average per client. Okay. And so so talk to us about what what you do for them. Cause I know the the firm has evolved quite a bit. As you mentioned earlier, your father was one of the early pioneers, the RIA and, and fee-only movement, and one of the, the founders of NAPFA. So you know, you've been at this for 
quite a while. The firm overall has been at this for quite a while. So talk to us about what the, I guess, what, what the offering looks like today. Like when I become a, an Altfest personal wealth client, what do, what do I get? What are you going to do for me? <laughs> you know, I, it's a great question. And we have, the way we see it is that we want to do everything. Man, we, we, don't you, don't you know anything about segmentation? Yeah. We want to do everything for everyone. <laughs> Fully, that was always profitable. <laughs> <laughs> so we even have a program today for young professionals and, and the next generation of, of our clients. And we're doing planning for them as well. We're doing full wealth management. And so while the service offering for someone who's paying a lot more, you could, you could, you know, help them execute, let's say the, the mortgage example, let's say for one client, you're actually going and shopping mortgages for, for another client that, you know, let's say who is a young professional, you might just provide the advice and, and, and help them point them in the right direction to, to execute. But we're, we're providing full wealth management to our, our clients across, really across the spectrum. And we've, we've decided that going back to the way I see it, that we are providing not just investments and, and, and for a young professional, not, not a, a robo offering, but we're providing customized wealth management and how that, that materializes, how that takes shape you know, will will depend, you know, on on where the client is as far as are they at our at more of an introductory level or or you know have tens of millions of dollars with us. But everyone gets the same analysis on on the full spectrum of planning issues that are important to them. And so that's how we see it. We see it. I see it quite differently than the the number crunchers because I think that that could be. That type, that this type of model could be very profitable, as well as long as it's it's done thoughtfully and it's it's you have the right uh, technology behind you. So so how do you think about that in terms of I guess either service or or pricing? Right, the the challenge for most firms, particularly that have have grown over the years in the AUM model, is that it's hard to do this profitably for young clients because they. They don't have A to M. Like there's there's no assets to manage. So assets or management model is is very problematic for them. And when firms are used to an assets under management model, you know, especially with multi-million dollar clients, like just the revenue you generate from a young client, even if they're going to pay fees outright, is usually, you know, an, an order of magnitude smaller than what you can bill multi-million dollar households. So how are you? How is the firm handling this in in practice? Like, are you are you just setting a flat fee or a minimum fee? Or are you just taking them wherever they are and saying, "Hey, it's it's okay if they're not profitable now because they'll grow with us in the long run." How how do you look at serving next generation clients and and as you're putting it, not just doing an investment only robo offering, which at least we can do pretty efficiently. Like, you're in there for full wealth management, which is the the time intensive, labor intensive, harder to be efficient thing with clients that don't necessarily have sizable assets as an AUM firm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, so we charge a minimum fee and we also charge a parallel AUM fee. It's not two fees on top of each other, but it's the greater of the the minimum fee, which is just over $2,000 
or in, in year one or the AUM fee. And so we, you know, what, what we're providing to them is provided in a way that in which the, the work is streamlined, which is of course done efficiently for all of our clients, but it's also the types of people who might work with our younger professional clients are, are some of our earlier career advisors, really smart and, and, and talented people, but you know, they're, they'll be more likely to be in the same situation as the clients that they're working with. So that, that also helps to, you know, rather than having a principal level advisor work with, you know, someone five years out of, out of school, someone who is in more of a similar situation to them. And, and so that makes it more cost efficient as well, because of course those people are, are paid differently. Right. Just practical reality. Like if you're if you're pairing next generation clients with your next generation advisors who haven't grown as far up the income and, and salary or revenue scale, however you pay them, from a firm's perspective, like your your cost to service those clients is lower because literally they're being serviced by advisors whose own salary requirements are not as high yet because they're a little bit earlier stage in their career than a veteran principal with 20 years of experience who has much different income expectations. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's really been the, one of the things that that's really been key for businesses like ours is that we've had, we've grown with, with our clients and, you know, we've, I I work with one client who she started with us in, in the early nineties and, you know, grew with, with the firm. And that's, I think what, you know, it has, it has in part led to success of many firms. And, and so I don't think you want to, I think that uh, you don't want to stop doing that. You want to have a, a, you know, great long-term relationships with so many different people who, including the, the, the next generation of, of clients. It's like, if you, if you look at the, the children of your clients and, and you're, you're wondering if they're your clients, if, if they're not your clients, then what does that say about the longevity of the the relationship that you have with that family. And, and so I think that, that it's, it's something that if you're in it for decades, like I'm in this for decades, I hope to be working where I am for many, many, many more years. You know, I think it's, it's a, it's a great long-term investment to, to, to be offering this type of service. And so were you building this specifically with an eye of, Hey, we want to, we want a way to serve our next generation clients of of the existing firm, uh, like next generation member, family members of existing clients profitably, or was this intended to be just an, an overall offering for anybody who's young and wants to pay and finds value in the service, you know, parentheses, we can also do this for the clients of our, the children of our existing clients. It's really for the, for the next gen and also for other people who fit, who today fit, our ideal client profile. I mean, it, and so, so for example, we have a practice. We specialize in increasingly so within different segments. One of them being healthcare. So we work with young healthcare professionals or early career healthcare professionals, and we've had early career healthcare professionals that we've worked with who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in in student debt with virtually nothing saved. And we take them, we would take that person and have taken that person on as, as a client. And we 
help them with their student debt and as well as all of the other issues that they have, which are often not uh, investment issues. So we won't work with, with everyone. It has to be a uh, someone who we think in, let's say, you know, 20 years, 30 years would be a great, great client of ours, a great normal early retiree, uh, I mean, or, or uh, getting close to retiring client. And so that's, that's kind of how we, how we decide there's no, there's no hard and fast rule. And, and, you know, we, we enjoy working with a lot of different people, but, but that, that tends to be, you know, who, who we're working with. And so for that, you know, young doctor with hundreds of thousands of dollars student loan debt who comes in and says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pay your firm $2,000 for this wealth management service. Like, what does that person get? Like when I come on board and I say, okay, I'm going to be a client of Altfest personal wealth as a young doctor, like what happens next when I say, okay, I'm ready to sign up? Yeah. So we, we, of course, we're going to agree on what, what the most pressing issues are and, and what needs to be tackled. But we, we tackle a lot of different things in that person's life. I mean, if it's a, we get a lot of people who are in there who are just starting families and, you know, we, we're helping them with you know cash flow planning saving towards multiple goals buying a a home and saving towards retirement and paying down debt or analyzing their their student debt we're we're helping them create a an estate plan for the first time so they can have guardians for the children and life insurance and you, you know it's 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 a lot of the the things that people in those situations need so it's 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 reinterpreting wealth management for the for the needs of those clients. And so are you doing like a standalone comprehensive plan? I I come in, I go through a three meeting process with you. Like what what actually happens when I say I'm I'm coming on board? Yeah, so we we tend to have a, a couple of meetings with people initially and then there's an agreement and the agreement is what's the the work that we're going to to perform and and then it's it's always like man there's there's so much to be done i am susceptible to this myself you know it's just like i want to do everything for the client in yeah. you know one minute but it's it it takes for you know it's a very extended process of helping the client maybe you know as far as usually it's it's cash flow planning that that is done first and then it's and and investments if that's relevant for that person and usually there's there's some investments and then there's doing additional work over time for the client, and you know I think the a clear understanding of of when things should be done is 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 helpful, but it it, it takes it takes quite some time, and it, and depend it it always depends on the on the client how engaged the client is, how you know, people are busy with their kids and and jobs, and and you know how it goes. It's just everyone's a bit different, but it tends to unfold over uh, over quite a period of time, given how much how much work there is to do. And so, do you parse this out by nature? Like, we're going to do this many meetings in year one. We're going to do this many meetings in year two, and structure it that way. Like, how how do you work through all this giant list of stuff that tends to crop up? We have an open policy with our clients, and and so we're we're constantly in touch with them. When, however, how and based on how they want to be in touch, some people want to be very frequently in touch, and some people don't. 
we want to meet with people at least once a, a year, you know, at, at the very minimum. But there's so much back and forth between advisor and client often that it's less of a set meeting schedule and it's more like, you know, let's let's get this done. And, and if we need to have meetings along the way to, you know, go over a deliverable, like we're, we're reviewing a, a new client's stock options with, you know, is choice between founder stock and non-qualified stock and incentive options and trying to figure out what, what the best exercise approach is. And, and so we'll set a meeting to review that, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, it's a lot, it's, it's kind of like a combination of, of a meeting and then there's just so much back and forth and it, and that's what it is now in, in our age, I think in the, in the digital age, it's like, you better be able to communicate through technology, you know, through, through video, through email, through pretty soon we'll be doing more texting. You better be able to just be constantly engaged and kind of take it outside the meetings. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point to me that just the whole nature of I'll call it the traditional approach, you know, we we meet with our clients once a year or twice a year, like whatever the hard concrete number is, they come into our office and sit across from us that when you look at this particularly in the context of next generation clients, some combination of their comfort with technology overall to communicate by a wider range of means and just the sheer scheduling constraints like good luck getting a meeting scheduled with a dual income couple who's got several children and while they're shuttling them around to, you know, karate and gymnastics and soccer games. Like it's just so logistically hard to get them in. I, I know that struck me even the context of our firm. Like I, I never realized how much flexible time our retired clients have to schedule meetings until I (laughs) tried to schedule meetings with clients who were still in their twenties, thirties and forties with, with younger children. And now, living through it with young children that just finding the time for my wife and I to go to a meeting together is tortuously difficult. <laughs> Usually one of us has to hand off so the other one can watch the watch the kids because even babysitter logistics are are challenging. And so, you know, all of those alternative mediums like, hey, we're going to meet with via video or we're going to communicate with email or we're going to communicate through texting even, like those are meaningful touches. You might actually have a lot of communication and touches and interaction and advice moments with next generation clients. It's just a whole bunch of it might not be the traditional meeting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to find a sitter and you have to, you know, I was working with a young doctor and, you know, speaking of doctors, they're among the busiest, right? This doctor worked out of state, lived out of state, and we were having a video conference call from his hospital cafeteria <laughs> and he had the the bluetooth on so people couldn't hear what we were saying but he couldn't he also didn't want to share details out loud with the other people in the cafeteria so he was using the message box to to send you know balance information and you know we were screen sharing and you know that that kind of that kind of technology is 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 great i mean what, what we would have what's the alternative you know if there were 10 years ago we'd be you know, on the phone and looking over some report or something. I mean, it's, it, it becomes very important to be able to, to communicate easily with people who are incredibly busy. So, so contrast this for us with your, I guess I'll, I'll call it your traditional clients, the, you know, more early retiree or fully retired, your, your average $2 million client. Like what is, 
what is a relationship with those clients look like as contrasted to what you do for next generation clients? Yeah. So it really comes down to, to what their needs are, how they're different. You know, what, if, if, if it's a, an older client, you know, perhaps we're talking to the client about estate planning and we're talking to the client about retirement planning. And if it's a, you know, an earlier career client, you know, perhaps we're talking to the client about cash flow planning and, you know, setting a first initial financial plan, putting that into place. And it really goes, you know, by the the need and the preference of the client. I mean, if there's, it could be more in person for, you know, clients who are getting closer to retirement, it could be more digital for, for other clients. It's, it really, everyone has different preferences and it's hard. Sometimes it's very hard to, you know, paint everyone with the, it can be very hard to paint everyone with the same brush, you know? So you, you have to, in our business, you know, it's, 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 it's a customized, personalized business. It's like, you know, what is, how does this person want to communicate and where, how frequently with who, you know, but you can make some, you know, general characterizations about people in their, in their careers. And I mean, in their life, in, in the stages of life that they're in, what they want. And so, are you like delving into full financial planning software and producing comprehensive plans as standard for clients, or is it more flexible to whatever it is they want to cover? You may go there, or you may not. You know, I think we always want to. Sometimes you can want to do more than the client wants, and it's like, well, we can help you with with this, this, and they, and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm. A, I'm okay. We're, we're always willing to help our clients and we have the, the full service offering and, and, but it's, it's trying to figure out what's, what's the most important thing to the client. Often it's, you know, we want to, we want to balance investments with financial planning. And that was a huge reason for, you know, the software, the retirement planning software we use and, and the digital manager, you know, was to, to have more of a, a well-rounded planning versus investing experience. And so, you know, it's, it's often updating the, the client's retirement projections. It's going over their investment portfolios. It's talking to them about their taxes, if, if that's of, of, of interest. It's a combination of, of different things. And did you say you're, you have your own retirement software as well as your digital manager tool? No, no, no. We use eMoney for retirement and and the digital manager tool. And have you guys actually set a a name yet to the digital ma- manager tool when it comes out, or is that still to be determined? We have a name, Michael. I'm going to have to to make you wait a little bit for it. It's still uh, it's still a little early, so I'm going to all right. I'm going to add add some suspense, but you will be one of the first to know. Sounds good. We'll probably cover it in our our monthly fintech coverage when you're ready to announce it out there. Sounds sounds a good deal. So so give us context to the broader evolution then of your path with the firm. So you know your parents got going, correct me if I'm wrong, like back in the eighties. They were, I think, very early to the RIA channel. So so the business is going for twenty odd years. Then then you show up <laughs> on this path. You know, you went from essentially investment analyst to now serving as the president of the firm. So, how does that evolve for you personally as a career journey? Like, how did you go from investment analyst to president? 
things just evolved organically. You know, I remember I had been working for a few years and there was a, a leadership team meeting and we were just something was being discussed, some some business planning issue. And I was I was called in to get my opinion. And I guess they like what they heard because once I was called in, I kept being called back into them into into those meetings. And I knew at that point that I wanted to make more of an impact on the management of the firm, but I, I wanted to learn more. And so I, I took 16 months off. I got my, my MBA here in New York at Columbia, and I basically got an MBA in Altfest. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, let me learn and take classes and, and keep notes about things that can improve our, our firm. And it's got to be interesting going through MBA education, like having already been in a firm for several years and then like literally reflecting back what you're learning in classes against what you what you do in the firm since you already had gone down that road for several years. Yeah, it's it was a really special opportunity just to to be outside as a student. It's like the the same experience you get when you're at a conference and you step away from your work and you know you you get to listen to 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 people share their views and and it's like you get that for well over a year with incredibly smart people. And I set out a plan that was really focused on further professionalizing the firm. And it was, you know, coming back to the firm, which had, at that time had been set up as a into different functional departments, investments, and financial planning. Our employees were on straight salary. There weren't any career paths. And I reorganized the firm, or I led the reorganization of the firm into wealth management teams. You know, our, our focus is on our clients, and we felt that that was the, the best way to, to, to serve them, and created very well-defined and structured career paths that you had a lot of what you can call leverage, where it had great, smart people doing junior work, assisting the, the more senior people. And the accountability to clients, how we evaluated ourselves. We went, you know, what what are metrics for for advisors? What are signs of success that we're doing a, a great job for our clients? We started doing these these you know in depth engagement studies for our clients, where we would monitor their satisfaction and other things that that would define an engaged client, and that became. Part of you know contributor to people's bonuses and service how well they're servicing their clients and and wait that's an that's an interesting one so you're so you're tracking a measure of client satisfaction and then tying it directly to to bonuses and compensation for the advisors yes yes we when we still do that so how do you how do you measure that we want to know how well we're doing for our clients and satisfaction in general. How well is, is Altfest doing? And how well are the people, how happy are you with the people who you work with? And so we literally just ask, how happy are you with the advisor that you work with? And we look at satisfaction scores. And, you know, the the higher the satisfaction, the, the more compensation one gets. So is that a an email? Is that like a phone call? Do you have a third-party survey firm that goes out to all your clients to to get these client satisfaction ratings? Like, how, how do you literally gather these kinds of scores? Yeah, we, we've been using 
Julie Littlechild's firm, which was before Advisor Impact. And now I don't remember the new version of her, of her firm that she just reintroduced. Absolute engagement platform now. Uh-huh. So that's the one. So, so we, we use her firm. She does a, has a good template. We, we customize it to, to what we want to measure, which, which becomes different for, you know, when we're doing it, depending on, on what we're thinking about doing for clients at that particular point in time, would you, would you like us to help your, your children, et cetera. And we get a huge, really high response rate. It's not like a, a survey monkey where it's like, you know, no one's filling this thing out and you have to bribe them with a Starbucks card or something. They pay you well. You would think they kind of have an incentive to actually respond to the to the survey at the, at that point. <laughs> you know, people when it comes to wealth management, thankfully, they, you know, it's 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 serious. It's like, please tell us how you'd like to we can better help you and we're going to use these answers to do actionable things for you and and so we and and of course we 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 you know, we try to mail, we mail, we email, we but we we get you know close to half of our clients who are filling this out and, and providing I think like ninety percent of them provide their names, so you know we we can use that information to tailor our services to to what our clients want and and hold ourselves accountable to our clients. I've been, I've been fascinated by this whole direction that you know Julie launched her client insights as part of the absolute engagement platform. There's another firm out there I know called Nexa Insights that's doing a similar thing that, I don't know, on the one hand, it sort of embarrasses me for our industry that that this is novel and new, but like, hey, what would it be like if we actually just asked our clients on a periodic basis how we're doing? Uh, like, <laughs> It's a really straightforward thing. There's, well, now even industry-specific survey tools to help facilitate it, but but so few firms I find have have ever done that to be able to track not not just how are they doing in particular, but I think especially for larger firms when you you know when you have five or ten advisor teams out there and nine of them score well and one of them scores poorly, like you find out pretty quickly if someone on one of the teams is not up to snuff with the rest because it shows up in the feedback scores if you bother to ask the questions and get the feedback. Yeah. It's so worth doing and it's, it's such valuable information. And if you have anyone who's unhappy about something, you can follow up with them and, and fix whatever issue there is, you know, people should be able to define the way that they work with their, with us. And it's just, this is their way of doing it. Like you ask, you know, what are you, what are you deciding to do for a particular client? And, you know, if a client says, Hey, I, I want to, discuss tax planning with you or socially responsible investing, then that's what we're going to discuss. It's it's kind of like they're setting they're setting their own service experience with us. Very cool. Very cool. I love that that became systematized and to the point that you tie it to advisor compensation. So I guess at the end of the year there's just some transition thing. Like yeah, you know, if your average score was eight out of ten, you get this bonus. If your average score was nine out of ten, you get this bonus. So, you know, try to do good work for your clients and keep your satisfaction scores up. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's one of the, the inputs for their, their incentive comp and, you know, it's a great coaching opportunity. You know, it's, it's a great, it's really helpful data to have that's practical, but like you said, Michael probably doesn't get implemented as much as, as it could. So, so you said you, you started restructuring advisor compensation or right? tying bonuses, incentives to things like, client satisfaction. You you also talked about 
restructuring, I guess, away from departments and into teams. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what that looks like now? Like, did you blow up departments entirely and every team has an investment person, a planning person, and a, and a lead advisor? Is there still some departments, but some teams? Like, what what does this look like in your firm? Yeah, so we, we said that we want all advisors to have a baseline of financial planning knowledge. And so everyone was required to get their CFP designation. And we then said, who are the people who want to participate on the investment side? You know, we have CFAs here and we also have dedicated investment analysts, but they're people who want to have a hand in the the investment portfolio and, and follow some of, you know, a segment of the markets. And then there's some people who want to work on another side of the business. Maybe it's life insurance planning. We have someone who's working on that. So it's it's kind of longer we've had to play this out because it's been some years now, the more we've tweaked it and said, we should start with the the person. I'm not a you know, I'm not such a a, a big fan of absolute structured, like bureaucratic career paths. I think you have to say, what does this person want? How does this person want to develop? What is this person interested in? And then where are the opportunities at our firm? And we're doing so many things that there's, I haven't run into a situation yet in which, you know, the person's, the advisor's interests are not aligned with you know our our firm's strategy that we haven't been able to to find a, a place for them to to work on things that are not let's say non traditional to the to the career path. So what what constitutes a team at this point? Like who's who's on a team? How is it comprised? Our clients have a an advisor who's their first point of contact, and then. There is a more senior advisor in a strategic role who will be available to the client and should the client want to bring them into uh, bring that person into something or the person's often in the review meetings with with clients and there could also be in 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 some cases yet another secondary advisor who is available and then there's a we have a, a whole team of of people who are who are helping on the operation side, but also on the on the financial planning support side. We've created very recently. We created a position called a financial planning specialist, who's focused on doing technical work, and is on that person's on the the path to being an advisor. It's really cool. It's like maybe I start out at Altfest doing operations and trading, and then you know I get my CFP, and then I'm immersed in technical work, even before I start speaking to clients, like my job is to, you know, to do planning and underneath the supervision of someone more senior. And then, and then by the time I'm an advisor, like I'm, I'm already like a financial planning genius. So it's pretty cool from, from, from that perspective, this, this new addition that we have and, you know, helps our advisors work with more clients as well. Interesting. So, so a team essentially becomes a, a lead advisor, possibly a, a senior advisor in a more strategic role. So, you know, the mentoring opportunity, the chance to have, you know, one of the principals or partners in without having them in every meeting, some operation side person to support, and then a financial planning specialist that supports them on the, the kind of the technical grinding work that has to be done for clients. 
Yeah. And so is there an investment person on this team as well, or is investment still like separate and centralized unto itself? Investments is is centrally handled, and I would say the the exceptions, the customizations that are happening, which happen a lot. I mean, we have hundreds of portfolios. Those are the ones that the advisor is is working on. So the advisor is is speaking to the client, explaining our views to the client, understanding the client's preferences, and and customizing the portfolio. But the the investment decisions, we we have ten plus people who work on the on the investment side of things who are making the decisions under including the analysts people who are spending time as analysts and we have a we have a portfolio action group which are there are five five of us on that portfolio action group and they're they're setting strategy for the portfolios portfolio action groups so is that like the functional equivalent of an investment committee yeah you could say it's it's the equivalent of a of an investment committee that operates very quickly as opposed to it's like when uh when an urgent decision has to be made market volatility a concern about some investment that you hold like when people have to come together to make a decision this is the people you put in a room to make a decision fast yeah that's right so we our portfolio action group is the steering body that sets the strategy and so you went and got your mba you came back to the firm started implementing some of these changes. So I guess I'm sorry, like, how does that go over with the rest of the firm when like, oh God, he went to MBA school and came back and now all these things are changing. <laughs> like how do, how do you put through that kind of change in a firm that was already around what, tw- 25 years at that point? There's some things you that you should do. And then there's some things that you do do when you're early in your career. That was one of those moments where I was like, man, I could have done this better. What, what happened? Like you got backlash from the stuff you were trying to do? Yeah. You know, it, it's one thing to have the, the leadership teams buy and It's another thing to to do a lot of, you know, individual work with people at the firm. And so when this was happening, maybe 10 years ago, it was like, yeah, this is great, but it probably would have been better to, to incorporate people's feedback early on so they get their their buy-in. And so, you know, people like the system, but it was like, you know, at the same time, there was less buy-in. It was like mentally like the system, but like, man, I should have had my voice heard because now I have to operate in the system and I would have preferred to, to, to shape it. So that's one of those things you just, you know, you, you, you learn and, and you got to learn from your mistakes. Yeah. True enough. True enough. It's, I think particularly one of the challenges that a lot of us go through and business owners that, you know, we start on our own and our actions only impact us. And then maybe we get a little bit bigger and actions may impact a few employees, but they tend to be lower level employees. You just kind of have to take the, take the gig and what the boss says sometimes. At some point though, you, you grow the firm larger, you get some, you get more employees, you get more good employees, you have more choices about where to work. And all of a sudden this whole like actually taking stuff to the to the team and getting buy-in begins to really matter or you really can't upset people and they'll just walk and turnover is expensive. Hmm. Yeah, it's it really is. And there's so much that we do on the employee engagement side. We're very proud that we just got named one of the best places to work by investment news. And you know, we measure employee just like we measure client satisfaction, we measure employee engagement. We do multiple studies throughout the year. 
the first thing I did when I got named president was go and have lunch with every single person at the firm to figure out, you know, what we can be doing better for for the firm. You know, managing an employee focused firm because employees are our assets. They're 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 the the lifeblood of the organization. And you know, it's it's just like managing clients, it's it's managing effectively employee relationships. We're very lucky to have, you know, some great people, but it takes, you know, it's your point, turnover is very expensive. It takes forever to find someone. It's just the fit has to be right aligned with our culture and and you know, to lose people is, you know, is is costly. So we're very employee centered. So you measure you mentioned there that you actually measure employee engagement as well. So can you talk about that? Is this like similar to the the client engagement metric? Like you're sending emails around to the employees saying how well engaged do you feel with your job here at, at Altfest and they and they give you feedback? Like how does that how does that work? Yeah, we do two types of, of employee satisfaction reports. One's more we use Gallup for one. You know, Gallup's well known in this, and they can provide benchmarking information. And so we use we use Gallup. What's missing though is you need to have open ended questions, right? You need to, you know, how can we be doing things better, etc. So we we use SurveyMonkey to to gather feedback from employees, and we the leadership team goes over that feedback. We also have have started best practice committee. Uh, different committees and one including best practices committee where where people are making suggestions and you know we go over that we talk openly about what the feedback is and we act on people's feedback and it's kind of like shaping your experience just like clients can shape their experience with us and employees could can shape their experience with us as well and and all this stuff has to be so personalized everyone is one person's hot button issue is it's not another person's hot button issue so you have to really sit down and take the time to get to know what what matters most is this person focused on moving up quickly is this person is there something else that's driving this person and you know tailor it to that to that person if you if you take the time to do that then you're pretty much doing a lot of what you need to do very cool and so that that Gallup report, I'm assuming that's their Q12 employee engagement system. Is that that goes out once a year to employees? Like you just, hey, end of year time to do the survey feedback, or do you do it more frequently, or do you like tie it to performance reviews? Like how do you actually mechanically send this out and do this? We definitely do it once a year, but we also do the uh, satisfaction survey with that has open ended questions as well. So that's a second time. And then we do an, an, an employee technology survey, which tends to be joined at the hit with satisfaction because if employees aren't happy with your, if you ever want to understand why it's good to make an investment in technology, one, one of those reasons is definitely to keep your employees happy. So we're, we're, we're constantly looking at people's satisfaction with the technology we have. Those are the three surveys we do. Very cool. And the employee technology survey, like is that about overall systems? Like, hey, do you like that we use eMoney Advisor for financial planning? Or is that more personal? Like, just, you know, do, do you like your computer workspace and, you know, does it boot up sufficiently <laughs> fast? Like, that that sort of stuff. It's it's all of that, right? It's like, you know, how, how happy are you with, with our systems? How happy are you with the support that you get due to feedback? We decided to hire a full-time 
IT consultant in-house, which has been working very well. You know, so it's it's a great way to understand when it's time to overhaul your your systems as well. You know, a few years ago, we we set out to be in the top one percent of RAs when it comes to technology, and you know, taking a look and seeing which programs needed to be replaced for many, the satisfaction, the frequent technology or periodic technology satisfaction reports were very helpful. So. Talk to us about ongoing development as well. I know you, well, as you said, you did your MBA, and I, I think you were also one of the early people in Schwab's executive leadership program as well a couple of years ago. Yes. You know, the the MBA was really helpful, high level, and then I was like, this executive program came about and, you know, Schwab did a, a great job with it, but I was wondering, you know, do I, do I need this? Uh, it's more business education taught by MBA MBA teachers, but it was very helpful. It's very practical. Any executive education programs are, are really worth the investment. So can you talk about just like, what does it cover? I mean, what do you, what do you do in the Schwab executive leadership program? Sure. Well, first let me, let me give credit to Schwab for the Gallup study, the Schwab program that I, I actually pulled that from, from Schwab, from their program. And I understand that Schwab uses it as well. You know, you have different classes. One of them, for example, was a positive leadership class taught by a Michigan Ross School professor who has a very interesting way of looking at employee management and, and employee culture, company culture. And, you know, there was marketing, innovation, there's there was a human resources class. There's, you know, you learn on a more practical basis. And then you are also learning from the other people in the program. So it's it's very much participatory. One of the study groups I'm in came out of that program. So I'm still learning today from those people as we as we share what we're doing. So it's it was a very practical, worthwhile program to attend. So how how long does this run? Is this like you go out for a workshop for a couple of days and they go through these positive leadership, marketing, innovation, HR categories? It ran for a while and you fit it into work. So it's 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 not the, – the scheduled time wasn't too onerous. You have some assignments that you have to deal with. So you're not just all out on site for a couple of days as like a workshop. Oh yeah, to be clear, it's done by it's done remotely and you have remote calls and an electronic platform and then you do have a meeting at the beginning and at the end in person where you you travel to be on site and in person for more education and meeting time, but it's it's mostly done from your office. You can decide how much time you can afford to put in. We're all adults. So if you've got two different in-person trips, like how long does it take to go through the program? It took, my recollection is it took about a year to go through the program. Okay. So that, that's a, that's a long commitment. That's not a just, Hey, I'm going to go out for a weekend executive leadership thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a weekend thing. It's, it's more, it's more involved. It's like mini, you know, a bunch of mini classes that unfold over, over a year. So, so how do you compare MBA school versus Schwab's executive leadership program? I think MBA school is, 
you're trying to learn the fundamentals of a business, right? You know, you're taking accounting and corporate finance and you're taking all a strategy and all these foundational core classes. And then you, you, you take elective specialized to your need. I took my Altfest MBA electives. This program is super practical when it comes to HR in managing employees. For example, the, the failure that I pointed to with regard to getting employee buy-in before we reorganized our, our firm 10 years ago, that type of information like consensus building is actually covered in Schwab Executive Program. Things that would have been useful to learn in MBA school. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it's, 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 they're a great combination together. Interesting, interesting. And, and how do you like find or do the program? Like you just get to sign up? Was there a, was there a cost? Was there an application process? There was a cost to get into the program. There is also Schwab identified me as being someone who could benefit from, from this program. So I, I was approached and, and then I had to apply as well. I had to submit, I had to go through some, some evaluation process and luckily I was, I was accepted and, but I, I think reaching out, raising your hand and saying, I want to, this sounds interesting, could help me as I become a, a leader at the firm. I mean, I think raising your hand to vo- express your interest is the way to go. All right. And we'll include a link out to this as well for uh, maybe people who are curious further. So again, this is episode 134. So if you go to com slash 134, we'll have a, a link out to the Schwab Executive Leadership Program. And I know, uh, I think TD Ameritrade has partnered with Philip Halaby's group to do a G2 Leadership Institute program as well. So there's now one or one or two of these out there. So what is the management of the firm look like today? Like you're in a, a president role. What, is a, what does a president role mean in the context of a billion-dollar advisory firm? Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm in the ideal job. I, I'm working on what I love doing. Uh, I love growing things. I love building things and improving things. And I love working with clients. And, and that's what I do. So all these things that we're, that we're working on let's say the strategic initiatives, these are things that, you know, many of these things I oversee, whether it's how we reach out to new new groups and our specialization in different different segments of clients, or we're starting a, a, a new investment strategy for our clients as well. I mean, it's it's a round the clock job, but it's it's kind of like the job where your your hobbies have intersected with your your work and and it's like the position that we we all want to be in that I wasn't always in but am in at this point. And so what is the structure at the top look like overall? Is there a a leadership team and the president is on the team? Does the president run the leadership team organizationally? What is that org chart look like at the top and how does the how does a president role fit in? Cuz I just I don't see very many advisory firms that have a an identified president role. So I'm, I'm wondering what that looks like in practice. Sure. So we, we have a, a leadership team. It's a six person leadership team and I'm certainly very active in, in driving the strategy for our firm, but it's a participatory system. People vote on what we're working on and shape what we're working on. And above me, we have my father, who is the CEO of the firm, 
and is you know incredibly active in the firm, as active as he's ever been. And the leadership team is it consists of people who've been everyone's been at the firm for over ten years. We have people who've been at the firm even longer than me outside of my my parents. And it's just a group of very smart people who are we're all trying to to do what we do better. So what surprised you the most overall about trying to build your own career in the advisory business? So you look back over 16 odd years now. I think one of the things when you work at a a family business is that you kind of tend to have done everything. You know, I think I probably started working here when I was 14 filing papers. I've, I've been working in worked in the operations side, I've worked in the investment side, the client advising side, leadership position. And it's it's kind of like, well, what do you what do you love to do? What's the the best fit for you? I was acting as the COO for many years. That that actually that's not really my love is is like the administrative side of things. I'm very lucky that I, I work closely with someone who who love, does love doing that type of work. And so it's kind of like the most surprising thing has been where I've found my passion and where, you know, I, I have just been able to position myself and, you know, I've, I've moved, I started out on the investment side and I moved later to doing more financial planning work. I got my CFP four years ago, or, you know, don't, don't quote me, (laughs) something like that. You know, I, I really enjoy the wealth management side of the of the work as well as the the investment side. I love investing. And it's it's kind of like just seeing how things have, have come together in in a very entrepreneurial, client focused role. What was the low point of your career or the journey for you? The low point. I mean you know, not fun memories were coming out of business school in, in two thousand and eight with all these plans and then, and heading into the financial crisis. <laughs> that, that was, uh, that certainly it wasn't kind of a high point. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the good lesson in, in being flexible, it's like, now we have to, to work on client communication and, and, and put everything else off. So that, that stands out as, as one of the low points. And it just, you know, again, the, the, the job of the kind of putting out fires, you know, of the day to day, that type of stuff is also not really, that's not really my love. You know, I, you got to work, find time to, like they say, work on, work on the business. And that's, that's where I, that's how my role has, has changed. So what does a typical week look like for you at this point? A typical week is a, a combination of, of working on, on these different initiatives. Let's say I'm, you know, working on the, on the development of technology or, you know, we have a huge, Roll out of doing more work within healthcare and and defining a unique service for reinterpreting financial planning for healthcare professionals, helping to to shape that and helping to to launch and do campaigns and and in a very for digital way to to these different audiences. We've hired salespeople recently for the for the first time. What does that look like? Sales salespeople, you hired salespeople in a fee-only firm. Yeah. One of the things about our, our industry, we're always looking within our industry for the best 
solutions, right? And that's that's great. You know, we're in these study groups and go to these conferences and, and we try to find what what's working for someone else. But in my opinion, you got to look outside the industry. And so while sales is unusual within the, the RIA space, there's some people who are, who are using salespeople and doing a great job, but it's not as usual. It is, I believe, is is I think people should be focused on, there's some people who do a great job working with clients and and then there's some people who are love to bring in new clients. We tried the grinder, minder, finder approach where it's yep. like, you know, advisors grow into business development officers and, and are doing more of the rainmaking like would be classic law firm, consulting firm, banking. And it just that was that was something that that didn't work for us. And so now we're doing something quite different. So how does it work with salespeople? I mean, it's, you know, salespeople are, are, they need to look different than you. It can't be, Hey, I'm hiring, you know, the guy that, that I could use as a wealth advisor for a outbound sales role. You can't do that. So it's people who, who are, are different, who fit, who, you know, they, they fit the culture differently. Some of them are, are much louder than us, (laughs) you know, it's, but they, you know, are very good at, at, at what they do and expressing the value proposition and helping to understand clients' needs and bring them on board. And I, I think that as we professionalize and continue to professionalize that dedicated salespeople are the future, particularly because, you know, look at all these firms that that the founders have, have brought in all their business, but now are, are going through succession planning. I mean, it's it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's inevitable. So the challenge to me that I hear about so often from firms that try this is, but the client tends to bond to the advisor. So it's like if the advisor isn't out there selling their services and their value and the relationships that clients can bond to them, then, you know, they, they just end up forming a relationship with the salesperson who then says, Oh no, no, you don't work with me. Like you're, you're going to work with that person over there And the client says, but I, I wanted to work with you. I like you. I was getting to know you. Is that, just not a not a problem for you guys like how do you how's a salesperson establish a relationship and get a prospect only to hand them off and not actually work with any of those people and and not have clients get upset in the process hmm. i think i think it has to be you know clear from the beginning as to how the the client's going to be served and so if you you know the advisors our wealth advisors are brought in very early in the process so they like sit sidecar in approach meetings. They just didn't have to originate the meeting because the salesperson did. Yeah. They might not be in meeting one, but they're in meeting two and, and are solving the client's problems. And it's, it's quite clear that this is the person that this person is competent and understands, you know, I've, I've explained what my needs are from the beginning and I've become confident and, and I decided in part to work with this firm based on who the people they are in front of me. And, and it's the transition becomes a lot easier. And and if it's if they having the the salesperson check in and on how things are going, there's nothing wrong with that either. But it's it's clear that you know who they're how the the service is working. So, what advice would you give to younger advisors looking to start their career in a in a firm today? I guess in in a in a parents firm or or otherwise. Like as you look back, what do you what do you know now that you wish you'd known then that you could tell? you know, 23 year old you about this journey? (laughs) I would, 
say that it's it's a great opportunity to come in to learn and that I've had many careers in the 16 years that I've been at the firm. I've had multiple careers. I've done so many jobs to find the one that that I that's best for me and and they've all made me a better leader because I I understand the business in every aspect of the business. And I would say to that person to move around the business, find what you like. It might not be what you think it, it's going to be and understand your role within the business. Have some have a role that's different than your parents have. I think that that is, is incredibly important. One of the, the reasons that it's worked out great for me is that we all kind of do different things at the firm. My, my father, my mother, and myself carve out a role that's that's different for you than than what your other family members are doing and move around and soak up all the information and you know you have a, a, an amazing opportunity of, to be a let's say a, a change agent and 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 improve the firm and and you know you're you're already starting out with with the values that that have made the firm what it is so as we wrap up this is a a podcast about advice or success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is that even the word success means different things to different people. So you've certainly had what anybody would objectively call a successful career trajectory and path. You know, you, you went from entry level analyst to president of a $1.3 billion firm. But I'm wondering for yourself, how do you define success personally? It's one of those things I've I've also had to to work on because I'm, I'm a competitive person and I want, you know, you wanted to do so much. I, I think you, success for me is building on the foundation and the legacy that was created by my parents and taking that legacy that is a client first organization that, you know, has very strong values and building on those to make the firm so much better and to make it vibrant and last for and flourish for many, many years to come. And so that's how I define personally define success. I define, you know, client outcomes. I define, which is highly aligned with our core values. It's about building on the, on the legacy that my parents created. Well, very cool. Thank you again so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It was a pleasure, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.